Hi, I'm Brianne Bennis, and this is No End in Sight, a podcast about life with chronic illness. Today, I'm talking to Liz Allen about her Lyme disease, chronic fatigue, and how sickness narratives show up in our culture. As usual, I chime in with a few anecdotes from my own health story, so check out episode one if you want to hear more about that. I met Liz at a casual storytelling workshop in San Francisco, and I was totally floored by the way her story captured so many different components about life with chronic illness. Now I'm super excited about her current project, The Invisible Stories Project, which she explains more at the end of this episode. I want to add a quick content note for this episode as well, which is that we do talk briefly about suicide in online illness communities. It comes up twice, but is very brief in both cases, so if you use the jump ahead button, we should have moved on to a new topic. And of course, I've got my normal disclaimer. This podcast is not intended as a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Make sure you talk to your practitioner about any questions or symptoms. Hello. Hi, Rianne. <laughs> How are you doing? Um, I'm doing pretty good, actually. I, you caught me on a very good week. Yeah. had a ton of spoons, if you will, as in a ton of energy this past week. Perfect. Yeah. Okay. So I do know some of your story, but we'll start again from the beginning so were you healthy as a kid so um yes in a lot of ways i was super healthy as a kid i was a super active kid Um, i played a lot of sports my family was very active we traveled all the time um i interestingly though was born with an atrial septal defect in an anomalous vein um, which was heart problems so like a hole in my heart and one of my veins was plugged back into my heart so the blood was cycling so I actually was a pretty sick little kid, but just related to the heart problems. Um, so I did like, I was very active and then I started passing out and I started getting short of breath. And so I got dragged around to the doctors. They eventually found this problem and I had heart surgery when I was eight years old, open heart surgery. Um, and it was my second heart surgery. Wow. Um, so there was that, but one, once I like got the surgery, I got way better and my dad and the doctors wanted me to like keep my heart strength up. It was like a very important part of um, recovery. So I ended up swimming uh, pretty full time starting at eight all the way through college. Um, and I swam and I played lacrosse and I played water polo and I sailed and I did synchronized swimming and I just was like a super, everyone called me very high energy. That was like <laughs> a frequent descriptor of me when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. <laughs> high energy. And I was like, you know, an overcommitted, like typical overcommitted high school kid. Um, So the heart problems, and I actually did have allergies. So I had environmental allergies as a kid and got allergy shots. Um, But outside of that, there was no real other problems. Gotcha. So yeah, especially as once you can kind of move and get in the pool, which is presumably free from airborne allergies anyway, it's like a good setup. Yeah. Yeah. It ended up working like really well for me and I loved it. I loved swimming, you know, and even when you're young, swimming is a really intense sport. So you have morning practice and you have evening practice. And then I was, you know, swimming almost all year round. And the one season I wasn't, I played the cross, um, you know, on the varsity level in high school. So I was like very active. <laughs> Running around or swimming around all the time. Okay. Yeah. And then when did things start to change or what, what was your catalyst? Yeah. So my catalyst was um, very obvious. So I went to college and I swam and played water polo in college, division one. 
Um, and I led, I was like also rock climbing and skiing and I took snowboarding lessons and, um, all of the active things, all of the active things. And that summer I led backpacking and rock climbing trips, um, in Wisconsin. And I came back to college my sophomore year and just like tanked. I just went down pretty quickly and, um, in a pretty like almost like in a ball of fire it was just like very dramatic so I came back to swim and you know in the beginning you're out of shape and everyone's out of shape but everyone starts gaining muscle and recovering and I just can't I don't um and in the beginning like swimming is a very mental sport and so it's very much like if you are not swimming well that is your own mental weakness um which is what we thought for a while so there's a lot of pressure on me to like sleep better and suck it up and, you know, try harder. Um, but it just like wasn't working and everything was getting really hard. Like, and I don't know how else to describe that. And I wish I had better words for it. Um, but you know, words are really lacking. Yeah. That's (laughs) a huge part of the problem. Huge part of the problem. Um, so I, like, I just like, like, I'm like, hard as in like I felt like I had constant was constantly like like super jet lagged like carrying around lead like my brain was super foggy I was really sad a lot because I everything I mean I knew my body really well you know we had nutritionist coaches and weight training coaches and I like you know and I we had a sprinting coach like like my body was known by the coaches and myself super well and it wasn't performing the way it had the previous 15 years when I had been an athlete. And so it was just really confusing and frustrating. Um, when I was young, I was 19. Like I didn't, you know, I didn't know any different other than what people were telling me, which was like, I wasn't trying hard enough. And why would you think it was anything else? Like, right, right. Totally. Like I was like, okay, yeah, this is the only explanation. Um, but eventually my roommate got diagnosed with mono. So I ended up going into the rest of my roommates went in for mono tests and I, I got it too. And so they were like, oh, it's just mono. And I was like, okay, well, at least I have a diagnosis. This will be fine. Um, do you know now which virus it was just out of curiosity? Epstein-Barr. It was Epstein-Barr. Yeah. And I actually still test positive for Epstein-Barr. Me too. Like this, yeah. Recycles, but actually like tested active for mono for five years, but in my late twenties, um, which is like second part of the story. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get there. So, so yeah, so I now, so now I'm like, okay, I have mono, but my roommate gets mono and starts to get better after a couple of weeks and I get mono and I keep getting worse and worse and worse. And by worse and worse and worse, I mean my heart. So I'm a swimmer, which means I have a very strong heart. I've got a really good breath control. Like I can hold my breath for five minutes underwater. I can do three, sometimes four lengths of the pool underwater and all of a sudden, I, like, can't breathe. I'm, like, sitting at my desk trying to read a book, and I, like, can't catch my breath. My heart would jump to 150 beats per minute, my resting heart rate. And I know all this because we were tracking all this was 39 beats per minute at the time. Right, which is unreal. Like- unreal. High. Like, such good shape. Yeah. And, you know, and I, and it just was so scary. It was just so scary. Um And so people were like, oh, it must not be mono. So I went back to the doctors, and they were like, oh, it's de- – it's got to be depression and anxiety. Sure. <laughs> and I was like, wow, like this is wild. Like this is depression. Like this amount of heart pain and intensity and the shortness of like I just I like couldn't believe it. Like I the physical like, manifestation. Yeah. Of something the physical that manifestation you think is of mental. depression. 
I was like, man, this gives me a whole nother like, I'm so more, so much more empathetic. This is nuts. Like it's so hard to get out of bed. I was also I was sleeping a lot more. I was taking naps. I was having a really hard time like doing simple things like walking to the food court to get food. Like it, everything seemed so hard. Um, and I was, you know, I wouldn't have described at this point, I also was starting to be in pretty substantial pain, but not pain in the way I would describe it. So I had a broken thumb at the time. And so they were like, you know, so my thumb, they were like taking off my cast, taping my thumb to my hand, which hurt so bad. And I was swimming with this broken thumb and it was stabby, shooty, nervy pain because it was a broken bone that they were manipulating every day. So I could not miss practice because that's what division one athlete, you know, athletics is like. And so for me, pain was that it wasn't this like dull, achy, deep, um, like almost like I, like I felt like the marrow in my bones was hurting. It's like, you know, or like filled with lead. I mean, maybe that sounds a little weird, but that's like what it felt like. And I just didn't associate that with the word pain. Pain was broken bones. Pain is sharp. Uh, yeah, it was sharp. And yeah. something you can see. And something you can see. Exactly. So, um, so I had a hard time using and applying that word. The only thing I could say is I'm tired. I'm tired. And everyone's like, well, that's what depression is. Depression makes you tired and you sleep a lot and anxiety makes your heart race. And I was like, okay. So, you know, I had no reason to not trust the doctors at this point. So I was like, okay, great. So fine. I'm depressed and I'm, and I have anxiety and like, let's fucking fix this so I can go back and swim. Like my life is out there and I want it back. Mm -hmm. So I found a therapist. I went on Wellbutrin. I was like, great. Like I'm a really type A person. Um, so I was solution. This is the solution. I will do it. I will accept it and I will do it. And so I did it and nothing, like nothing got better. Not a single thing got better. In fact, it got way worse because I felt like everything I said, they'd be like, well, that's just from depression. And I would be like, I felt so gaslit. Like every, my experience wasn't believed. No one was listening to what I was actually saying. It was, it was like really traumatic experience. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Traumatic. So, so here I am like little college sophomore, um, still trying to swim, exhausted, like exhausted in the deep, deep sense of that word in pain. I'm having radiating hip pain. I'm having, I start having night sweats, like drenching night sweats where I wake up and my entire sheets are wet and I'm covered in sweat. I'm having all these heart problems. I'm having terrible brain fog. Like I'm, I was a straight A student. Um, my freshman year at Dartmouth. And then I'm, you know, I'm having a really hard time reading. I'm having a really hard time keeping up, um, which just wasn't like me. Um, and I'm working, everything feels hard. And so um, I go, you know, like I literally went from working out four hours a day, you know, to barely being able to walk upstairs. Like I was fainting on stairs. I would take stairs three at a time. And then I would, little black dots would come and I'd pass out. <laughs> yeah. And, um, and then in the winter, they switched. They were like, okay, this isn't going away. Now it's been five months of this. Um, and so I started going to cardiac. Like I went home actually over Christmas and my parents were like, we don't recognize you. Like what has happened? But for me, the change had happened over four months and we had some sort of like loose explanation that it was depression and um, I wanted everything to be normal. So I just kind of thought it was. And when I, th- I think this is like just human, humans are very adaptable. And so I'd gone from a 10 to a three and I had just adapted. I was like, okay, my life is just this hard period. I'm just, I don't know. I'm just like not that tough and I have depression and life is hard. Yeah. And I went home and my parents were like, bullshit, like fucking bullshit. Like you are <laughs> this is not depression, Liz. This is insane. 
Um, and it was really, I'm so happy they were there to like check that. Yeah. Um, I needed it. I needed the outside check. And so they were like, we're going to like set up all these doctor's appointments for you. But of course I was like, oh, I'm a college kid, which means I am a grown ass adult. <laughs> like, you don't get to help me. Um, and so they were doing the best they could, which means they were like sneakily setting up all these doctor's appointments and then just like emailing me the dates and times to me and my roommate. And my roommate was the one who was taking me to all these appointments. <laughs> Good. It's work. Yeah. It works. It totally worked. And so I went to like a cardiac person who was like pretty sure it was my had to do with my heart surgery. And so I got diagnosed with arrhythmia and POTS, uh, postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome. Um, and I got diagnosed with like, I think at the same time, adrenal fatigue. And I went to an infectious disease to do- doctors. So right now I'm already up at like six diagnoses, right? And I'm like, oh, fuck if I know. Yeah. How um, do they one? all talk to each other? Who knows? Yeah. Yeah. And I'm like, I have all of these. <laughs> you know? um, and I go to infectious disease doctor who was the first guy who really listened to me. <clears throat> and um, the appointment was like 45 minutes and I talked for 40 of it. Oh, and yeah. by talked, oh, yeah. I mean cried. I just bawled this poor man. Um, here I am this like 19 year old, you know, athlete, like just bawling, bawling, bawling half because I'm grieving my life and half because I am scared. You know, at this point I'm really sick. Um, and nothing is, nothing is working the way I, I want it to. And I, and I can't get better which is really frustrating to me. And so he was the first one was like, listen, we're going to run a bunch of blood tests. And even if none of these come back, I want you to know you're sick. Like this isn't in your head. Don't believe anyone who tells you that. Um, And you like can trust yourself and your body. And he was the first one to be like, I believe what you're telling me, which was so huge. And, you know, it was a big, I'm sure you experienced this too. Like doctors are so quick to dismiss women. Um, and they're really quick to dismiss young women, I think in particular. And I had, I've had so many, I've been to 45 doctors total in this experience and I've had so many of them be like, well, whatever you're feeling isn't real. And I'm like that, like, you are not in my body. You do not get to testify to my experience. And now that I'm older and 35 now, <laughs> now I just fire doctors. I'm like, nope, like, I'm, forget it. Get the fuck out of here. You don't believe me and you don't want to listen to me. Like, no, like I know my experience and I will stick by it. So, and I'm actually pretty flexible with diagnoses these days. I'm like, I don't know what, whatever you want to call is wrong. Fine. I just want to get better. So, um, I don't attach myself to diagnoses, but I'm very clear about what's going on in my body. Yeah. Um, I, I think about that a lot. And with talking to people, because for some people it can be so helpful when there are syndrome type diagnoses, basically. So, if you have fibro or if you have chronic fatigue syndrome, if that is helpful for you to have as an identity, then that's really great. And if it doesn't work for you to like build an identity around something that's only a piece, basically, of what's right. going on, then that's great too. It doesn't, but like having a plan of action feels very helpful. I think one of the things that can be really frustrating with dismissive doctors is that they can use that diagnostic tool of one of those or mental health stuff to basically send you away and not see you again. Exactly. Exactly. And it is like, it is tough. Like not all doctors can deal with people who are chronically ill because it is not linear. It is like a roller coaster. It's very complicated. People are very sick. They're very sad, you know, because they're very sick. Um, and I, you know, I don't think it's for every doctor, you know, and I'm like, no fault of your own if you can't do it. But like, don't tell me I'm crazy. How about you just tell me I don't really, I can't take you on as a patient. It's too complicated. That's fine. 
I would love you a know? lot more of that instead of just like, well, it's probably depression because of this 10 point checklist that I gave you. Instead, just this is right. outside of my scope. Here's someone that I refer to now. Right. Like I had somebody, I had one doctor tell me, I was like, okay, like it was essentially like, you know, it was like a fibro diagnosis, which is like, we don't really know. And she's like, you know, it's probably depression too. And I was like, well, what about the night sweats? Like, like what about my shortness of breath? Like, I am an athlete. Like, I should not be short of breath. Like, my resting heart rate is 40. Like, get out of here. And she was like, I don't know. You know, I think that's just part of the symptoms of fibro. And I was like, it's not a symptom of fibro. Night sweats are not a symptom of fibro. Like, what are you talking about? So I think trying to like, you know, whatever. So winter rolls around. I'm a sophomore. And somebody um, believes you. Somebody believes me. But so do the heart doctors who are convinced that I need to – they put me on beta blockers to try to lower my heart rate, and they tell me I need a pacemaker. And I'm like, oh, okay, pacemaker. Like, okay, fine. You know, I've already had two heart surgeries. Like, maybe I need a third. And so I call my parents, and I'm like, DHMC wants to put a pacemaker in. And they're like, what? <laughs> no, you're 20. Like, no pacemaker, no pacemaker. And so I'm like, okay, convince me to, like, delay on the pacemaker, which was super smart. And they're like, we'll get a couple, we'll go back to your original heart surgeon. We'll see what they say. So my parents start making all these other appointments for me for summer. Um, And summer because I end up going to Mexico to study abroad in the spring, which weirdly enough, everyone, I shouldn't have gone. I was too sick to go. But because I was no longer swimming or working out, I actually felt quite a bit better because I was sleeping a ton. Classes were very easy. Um, I was just like traveling, hanging out with my friends and I actually felt quite a bit better. So I went from like a three to like a six and in my head I was like, great, I'm actually not sick anymore. It's all fine. It's all fine. So I go home and I'm like, don't need to go to any appointments, mom, dad. Like I got better in Mexico. And they're like, you're not better. Like (laughs) you are still half of who you used to be just because you're not as sick as you were at Christmas doesn't mean you're better. Again, super helpful to have people put that in perspective because I had lost perspective. Mm-hmm. So they drag me to my heart surgeons, my old heart surgeons, and I get a whole bunch of like heart workup. And the heart surgeons are like, no, her heart's fine. Like it's not her heart. So then we go to infectious disease doctors and rheumatoid, arth- rheumatoid arthritis, you know, rheumatologist people, endocrinologist. Um, my hormones come back fine. Um, and an infectious disease doc finally does a full workup for Lyme disease because I live in Connecticut. My grandmother lives in Lyme, Connecticut. Everyone I know has gotten Lyme. Um, and it turns out it was Lyme and I get like a CDC centers for disease control, positive, um, Lyme test with co-infections of Babesia and an active Epstein-Barr. So it turns out my mono was a correct test and it was active and I had Babesia, which is a co-infection with Lyme, a tick, tick-borne illness, um, that causes night sweats and, and like raises s- and sister problems. infection to Malaysia, not to Malaysia. That's the wrong one. <laughs> Malaria. Yeah, Malaysia is a place. <laughs> to malaria, yeah, very, which people yeah, have heard of. Yeah, this, yeah, it's very similar to malaria, Babesia, and um, and then Lyme. And so, um, and with that came up, I was also very, as I tested fairly positive for lead infection. I went to a very old elementary school that later got found to have lead in the paint and stuff. So they ended up doing a big renovation on my elementary school. Apparently, I had some heavy metals. I also had almost no adrenal function at the time. So you do these like little spit tests and they test how much cortisol you're releasing. Oh, yeah. And I was releasing almost none. I did mine when I was going to a wedding because that was like the only time that it would work for me somehow. And I don't think it was a good idea. But you probably had a lot of adrenaline going. So yeah. you might have been higher. Yeah. Here. I like went back to my hotel room for half an hour. But I, I think it was 
the only, yeah you have to spit into a straw <laughs> straws yeah it's gross um, it's gross um but it was the, it was like a two and a half hour long appointment which was amazing because you know it's really hard to explain everything that's happening in 15 minutes and the other thing that was great is he gave me this whole list it was two pages of symptoms and things that I hadn't put together as being a problem, like we're on that. So like I didn't have words for brain fog and confusion and short-term memory loss, word find issues, like all the things that were happening, but I didn't know those were related. I thought they were just because I was tired and not because there was like inflammation or infection in my brain, which was making it hard for my synapses to fire. So that was really helpful. And however, I had been a full year. Like I had been very, very sick for a year and Lyme you're supposed to treat immediately and you treat with this one month of antibiotics and it's supposed to go away. And so we started there, but he was like, listen, you are really sick and you've been sick for a long time. I don't, I'm not sure it's going to work, but like, let's try it. Cause if it works great. And then you won't have to see me again. So we started with antibiotics and it didn't, like it worked a little bit like and this is what ended up happening for the next four years is I we would try what we call a protocol. So a series of drugs started with antibiotics. We ended up adding antimalarials because of Babesia. Um, we added anti-inflammatories um, and just like a whole series of other um, usually a combination of antibiotics. And you, I'd take them for three months or so and I'd start to feel better. And of course, I was young and in college. And to me, that was like the narrative was like, you get sick, the doctor prescribes these drugs, you take them, you get better. And so I that's like what I desperately wanted to have happen. So as soon as I started to feel a little bit better, like I'd be like, I'm better and we'd go off them and I would crash again, like just like crash all the way back down to the bottom of my worst, worst back to a three where I can barely get to class. Sometimes I can't even really speak. You know, I'm in incredible pain. I'm crying every morning because I can't get out of bed. You know, and I'm someone who like, you know, like I swam with a major concussion and a broken thumb, like multiple hours a day. I weight lifted on a broken thumb. Like I am, a, I'm like a tough kid <laughs> and I was just exhausted and to a point that I just like, you know, was just crying a lot. It was just so hard. It was so hard. Um, and it just like this, so we fought this battle back and forth for years, for four years, um, where I would take, you know, like Omnicef, Mepron, like Malarone, uh, you know, like Zithromax, so those Z-Packs you take, you're supposed to take five, like you get a little Z-Pack in those cardboard. Like I took that, I took two Zithromax a day for two and a half years, like massive amount of antibiotics. All of it. <laughs> All of it. And it was back in 2003. So there was not a lot of research done on this. So everything we did, he never claimed he knew to my doctor's credit. He was like, listen, you have Lyme. We don't know how to treat it when it goes past a certain point. So like, this is all experimental. Like you can stay sick. You can like do whatever you want. You can go see another doctor. You can try something else. You can come back if it doesn't work. Like I'm not going to force you to to try these things, but like, this is what we've been trying. It works for, for some people. And the thing is, I will stick with you until we find something that works. So, like, you know, you can sign up for this roller coaster and experiment or not. And I was like, duh, sign me up. Like, I'm supposed to be swimming. Like, get me back in the pool. (laughs) Yeah, whatever it is, whatever it takes. Whatever. I don't care. Like, give it to me. Yellow paint. I will swallow yellow paint. Like, you know, um, I will change my diet. I will, you know, I'll do all these things. I'll stop drinking. I will stop having coffee. I will, like, you know. Um, and I, you know, wasn't the perfect patient cause I was young. I was 20 and everyone around me was drinking and 
smoking and doing whatever. So I certainly was not perfect. In fact, I was like pretty far from it, but I was willing to try whatever it took to get me better. Mm -hmm. And four years into it, like it just wore me down in a way that was really tough. Like I, um, and you and I have talked about this, but like the narrative around illness is very flat. Like it is, you get sick, you get medication, you get better. And that's how most illnesses work. I mean, from everything from like a yeast infection to bronchitis to like even cancer kind of works like that these days where it's like, okay, you have this type of, you know, you have this type of bronchitis and we're going to give you these medications. You take it for seven to 10 days and then, you know, and you rest a lot and drink your orange juice and you'll be better. And I really I had no reason to believe anything else and I hadn't heard anything else. Like there is just not a loud enough narrative around chronic illness or these people, like people, and now I know a ton of people who are in this boat who live in this like liminal stage where you have a diagnosis. Some days are good. Some days are bad. Some months are okay. Some months are awful. And you live in this flare cycle of like what my doctor back then called the roller coaster. And he's like, you know, don't ride it too fast because the highs are going to be great, but the lows will be devastating. So you got to stay kind of in the middle. And he's, you know, he was right. Like I just, you know, I have months or and days where I feel awful still 15 years later and months and weeks like this week, I've had a great week um, where I feel great. And I just, I wish there was like a more nuanced narrative and that the narrative, which is one of the reasons why I'm so excited you're doing this podcast is that the narratives are really, um, they're just really flat. Mm-hmm. And there's so many people in our camp, you know, people who have MS and EDS and lupus and Crohn's and like there are so many people, like one in 10 or one in, you know, right? Yeah. Like I'd love to know love the to know stats on it because even because whatever's out there right now, I'm sure is inaccurate, partly because I think so many people are diagnosed with depression where that is not their underlying problem. Yeah, Totally. Totally. Yeah. I mean, I just had a friend who was like, had been diagnosed with depression for a long time. And then it came out that she's arthritis. And, you know, and it's like, well, maybe you're going to have depression because you're in so much pain all the time. And everyone everyone is telling you it's in your head. Like that's a very confusing, disorienting situation where your mental health is not going to be okay. There's no way you, it's impossible. Right. Right. Exactly. And it's just like super, it's just like super frustrating um, to like have to fight that all the time, especially because like, especially when I was younger and I didn't have the tools to explain, like I didn't have the words when I was in my early twenties, like nobody was sick. I knew nobody who was sick and everyone just thought I would be getting better, you know, but I didn't get better. I just kind of like had periods of better and periods of worse. Yeah. And And people don't, that's it. I mean, everything that you said and I think because there isn't media around it there's a huge empathy gap because they don't know people don't know what questions to ask because they haven't been exposed to the story in like a safer environment we'll say so if you you know if somebody well now if somebody you know is diagnosed with cancer but when we were younger if someone's parent was diagnosed with cancer it was like you could watch stepmom or you could watch there's a million cancer movies and you could go and you could watch them and you could have lots of questions and you could rage about it and then you could go back to the person that you wanted to support and be ready to be supportive and there's not a lot of resources right now and i'm especially when the internet was younger we'll say in the Mm -hmm. early 2000s when there were even fewer resources so it's like you don't want to ask your friend the wrong question about their like weird health problem that you don't understand and so you just sort of like I'll just wait for it to go away and then it doesn't go away 
Totally. And, you know, I got back. So I got my Lyme diagnosis and there was literally one super crappy blog <laughs> that existed from like some moms in New Jersey who were more like they worried more about like the color of the blog than the content. And I didn't meet anyone like for years. I met nobody who had Lyme and I met almost nobody who was sick at all um, in my age bracket. So it was like they, like so isolating. I didn't know how to describe it. And when I did, people would say the dumbest shit, you know, like I'm tired too. And I'm like, what? Like, I don't mean tired, like normal people tired. Like, yeah, we're not talking about the same thing. We're not talking about the same thing. Or like, have you tried yoga or, you know, you know, breathing deep really helps with energy. And I'm like, what are you like, if I had a broken leg, would you be like, breathe deep? No, you'd be like, go to the doctor and get a cast. Yeah. And then after, (laughs) if you need to cope with it, that could be helpful. But you're coping with waiting for the treatment to resolve. You're not coping with the problem. Right, exactly. And I know these people are very well intentioned, but it just and for years, it would devastate me because it was just like, I was so sick, I couldn't describe how sick I was. And I didn't like have the language because there was nobody else talking about it. So it was me in my own brain. The world was felt like it was barreling by at 60 miles an hour. I could only go 20. And of course, everyone, I was young. So everyone was like partying and proving themselves. Like by the time I graduated, like I moved to New York because I was like, you know, I graduated in four years, which is crazy. I was just going to ask that. <laughs> so you graduated on time. You stopped athletics. I It sounds like. Well, Mostly. I stopped swimming. Yeah. Yeah. And then I ended up actually playing water polo all the way through, oh my which God. which is harder. Hard well, I don't know if it's actually harder, but you stop. it's certainly masochistic. Yeah. Um it's an aggressive like really, sport. <laughs> an aggressive sport. It's really hard. Um, but I seem to have, and this is still kind of true, like I have I can push through I can push very hard for three days and then I crash. I can yep. push kind of hard for a couple months, month or two, and then I crash. So by the end of every season, I'd be in awful shape, you know, just like exhausted, crying all the time, and unable to think, et cetera. But the first month or two, I'd be once I'd be like kind of okay. So I graduated from college. I'm like training for a triathlon. Sure, of course. Because I'm like, you know, it's just – I'm having a very hard time, as you can hear in the story, accepting that I might be truly sick for any sort of – period of time Mm -hmm. um and part of this is like you know it was my identity like my whole identity was athlete and I was proud of my body I was those were my friends all of my friends who were division one athletes um or had skied professionally like on NCAAs you know or like you know on the U.S. ski team or whatever and so it was really hard it was I was gonna have to change friends I was gonna have to lose my identity and my stress mechanism coping mechanisms and everything so I didn't want it to be true, and I was not very accepting of that. In fact, it took me a decade, <laughs> a serious decade to accept it. Um, but I, I – so I was in, moved to New York City. All my friends were like, you know, drinking a lot, hustling for their careers. I lasted exactly a month and a half, six weeks, and crashed so hard as bartending, I collapsed. Um, I ended up going back to my Lyme doctor and he was like, all right, let's, you know, now we've been four years, let's do something a little more aggressive. So I did intravenous antibiotics. So I got a central line, which is a tube that goes directly from your, um, into your heart tubes come out of your chest. And I got intravenous antibiotics every day, twice a day for eight months, ended up being on them for eight months. It's so much. It's so much. So I lived at home. The first couple months, I could barely walk. I was like in my bed. My mom was like spoon feeding me soup. You know, at 22, 21, 
everyone else lives in New York City and I am literally in my childhood bedroom being spoon-fed soup. And I'm like, I mean, I was just devastated. I was like, I'm supposed to be an adult. This is my time. I know nobody who's sick. There's no Instagram. There's no, there's no real Facebook doesn't, there's no Facebook groups at this point. There's no, there's just one crappy blog and I'm by myself. Like I just, you know, can't find anyone. I can't find any information. So that was kind of a super low for me um, in my health journey. But interestingly, it really helped. So I, by the end of eight months, I was like feeling a lot better. I wasn't, I would say I was still like a seven or an eight, but I was above a six. I could, I started being able to drive. I started being able to walk again because I'd been in a wheelchair for part of that time. And how does this interact with insurance for you as a side question? <laughs> well, so at this point, I'm still on my parents' insurance. I'm cobraing. So that's useful. And my parents are, um, <coughs> really driving the ship like I'm so sick I can't I could never have got done this for myself because I was so sick and so confused and like they had to you know points like both of them helped me to the car to get to doctor's appointments um they're keeping meticulous track of everything in excel trackers um and insurance is covering almost none of it like my intravenous antibiotics was sixty six thousand dollars for that for that eight months like this kind of stuff I think it's important also because it just blows my mind, everything about it, basically. I just talked to someone who currently is doing a treatment, not for Lyme, but for um, immune problems, whose treatment is $10,000 a month and covered by insurance in this case. But you're just like, what if it's not? And that's what you need. That's just the cost. That's what we're doing. Okay. Right. And I think about it a lot. Like, So I was very – because I know a lot of people now who who are very sick, who have Lyme, who've had Lyme for a long time. Um, and have all these like other problems and can't get, I mean, they just can't get the treatment. So they are literally as sick as I was like in bed, barely able to feed themselves and they don't have the money. And so they are literally stuck there. And then what happens is people kill themselves. Like you can't live like that. Right. And it, it like, I, we have lost a number of people. I've, we have lost five people in the last two years, uh, like in my like, virtual communities of sick people who mm-hmm. talk on Insta. I'm, I'm a big Instagrammer. And so um, I'm a part of like, you know, communities of hundreds of sick women, mostly a couple mm-hmm. men. Um, and we've lost five people in the last two years. People just, they cannot mentally, physically keep up with that. Mm-hmm. And I feel so... I feel so lucky that I had class privilege and my parents had cla- class privilege where, you know, it wasn't like we sold a car. Like it wasn't, you know, it wasn't the easiest thing, but it wasn't to know. Right. And I, for the last 10 years, have had a life where I know people who have spent the last 10 years exactly where I was in 2006, mm-hmm. in bed, barely able to feed themselves, not able to move anything forward. And I am like as active like I can hold, I, you know, I held on a job for a long time and that's because I, the, my parents were able to afford it. And I, the classism that's inherent in that is just so unfair. Like health is a right. It is not, it should not be based on your class privilege. And, and it's that, not even just the treatments. It's being able to go back over and over again until you get the right diagnosis to even try these different protocols. Since exactly what you just said, that it's even now, a lot of it's pretty experimental so there's mm-hmm. other problems but I think a lot of people you know they'll go to whatever care they have access to and then get told they're depressed and then go home and then 
and accept that. And that's like what they're like, okay, because the doctor told me. I mean, and I don't have the tools to find another doctor. Like, I don't mean that in a, and then they accept it and they're idiots. Like, no. And then they go home and they think it's wrong and they can't, they do not have the resources to do anything about it. And we do not make it easy culturally. Yeah. And imagine if you don't speak the language, right? Let's say English is your second language and you have to have one of your kids with you to help you interpret. Or, I mean, there's just so many things. And like, you know, my, like, I'm a lawyer now. And like, you know, I feel like I can look at a doctor and be like, "Mm, I disagree with you. I can do my own reading. I can do my own research and I can disagree. And I've got my own network of doctor friends that I can call and see if I agree with you or not. And that's like also like class and educational privilege to be able to be like, "Mm, I don't have to believe you, doctor, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, and I can go find my own. And I like that also isn't something that's available to everyone. No, not at all. It's I just think I really appreciate it in some stuff, stuff that I've read. Um, I really like the book Through the Shadowlands. I end up talking about that a lot. But she talks a lot specifically about and for her, it was like her former in-laws ended up loaning her or giving her money and I think something that this this one piece of like not even money helps you get better necessarily but money gives you the resources to figure out what's wrong and I think we have to like I think we have to talk about that yeah a hundred percent I also think like it's important to keep the conversation like intersectional too like Mm -hmm. you know so as a woman I feel like I you know I don't like I have privilege on a lot of accesses, but I don't have health privilege and I don't have gender privilege. Um, and so I feel like, you know, it is maddening to me that people will write off my pain and my experience because I'm a woman, but that is like far, far worse for women of color, you know, like they are like in terms of like infant more, you know, mortality rate, the lowest in the United States in terms of like getting good care, accurate care, appropriate care, people believing women of color. It just like doesn't, it's like even harder. Mm -hmm. So like race helps me when I'm, you know, my race and education and class background help me when I'm in the doctor's office. And I just like, you know, it's like medicine is like stuck with all of the isms of all the rest of the world and it's just so unfair you know and unless you have it's hard enough to be sick and try to navigate this stuff and if you don't have the deck stacked with you it is like nearly impossible and I think that's also something that like needs to continue to be talked about yes (laughs) agree (laughs) yeah um okay so so yes you were just saying so you I think had maybe finished, but you were getting the IV treatment and it made a big difference. Basically, you'd been using a wheelchair. You're at your parents' house. Yeah, I was in a wheelchair at my parents' house. Um, And by the end of the eight months, I was um, back... Uh, I was back rock climbing. So I was working at a climbing gym. And um, as soon as I started feeling better, I was like, okay, awesome. I'm going to go back to what I wanted to do, which was working for Outward Bound, being an outdoor instructor. So I I went back to backpacking and leading backpacking trips. And... um, was kind of in remission, I would say, in, in a way that was really exciting. I would not say I was a 10, but I would say I was like maybe a nine, eight, like, you know, bounce between seven and nine, which is pretty high. Mm-hmm. And um, so I was pretty functional and, but not, you know, not a hundred percent for sure. And I also just didn't want it to be true anymore. So when anyone talked to me during this period, it was about a five, six year period. I was like, oh, I was very sick. I had Lyme. It was terrible. I'm fine. It's over now. Uh, it's over. It's over. And I wanted to believe that narrative that I had treated it and it was over and that I hadn't done permanent irreparable harm to my immune system, which appears to be the case. So, um, and I went back, I worked, I 
um, broke my, I ended up having a very bad rock climbing fall and I shattered my ankle and have pins and plates and have ended up having four surgeries on it and it gets fused. So I do that over five years and then I end up in the classroom. So I do teach for America, which I end up uh, working incredibly hard for three years and working 80 hour weeks. And by the end of the first year, I am sick, sick again. Like I am crying every day. I want, you know, I am so, so tired. I can't seem to like, I'm getting night, night sweating again. I can't seem to catch my breath. Like things come rolling back in. And the next two years I kind of like fight it. I'm running on full adrenaline. I'm drinking six cups of coffee a day. I'm drinking a bottle of wine at night. I'm like passing out with my clothes on, waking up with tears. Cause I'm in pain as I'm sleeping. Um, and by the end of three years, I'm like, oh, I have got to get out of here because I like, I am sick again and I can't, I push it off literally for two years. I'm maintaining to people that I'm fine. Anyone who asks me, I'm like, I'm fine. And I'm clearly not. And so I make this decision that I need space. I like have to figure out how to get enough space to um, get better, to like actually prioritize my health. But I don't want to lose any opportunity cost at this point of 30, 29. And I'm like, I don't want to like take time off. I don't want to go back and live in my parents' bedroom. I need to be doing something where, um, you know, I can either get loans or whatever. So I decided to go to law school, which sounds silly. Known for being an easy ride. Um, but it ended up being really, it was a lot easier than teaching. And you have all of this blank space, right? So you're not in class that much. And like, right. yes, you have work to do, but you're not disappointing like the entire future of the world by not doing your work. So then like the next, so I, so I go to law school in Seattle, Washington, which also has known to have very good alternative medication, you know, alternative care, incredible hospitals. It's where Um, Bastyr is, which is like one of the naturopathic colleges. My sister went there. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And then like, you know, all the entire healthcare system up there is just super robust. And I've got friends from college there. And so I go to uh, University of Washington and I spend the next three years, both incredibly sick and kind of tromping around from doctor to doctor to doctor again, trying to find real um, solutions to the problem. And so I get diagnosed. So like my Lyme still comes back positive. So does Babesia, relapsing fever, which is another tick-borne illness, come, starts showing up. Epstein-Barr is active again. Um, you know, my symptoms are fairly similar, like brain fog. At this point, I'm getting migraines. I'm getting constant migraines. I think you had those before. Migraines. Oh my god. Um, in college, when I was really sick, I was getting migraines too, but they weren't as bad as they were when I was in law school. Like I couldn't look at a computer screen. I couldn't look at my phone. Um, I was wearing, you know, glasses and a hat, and everything was super scrambled. My like poor friends from law school were wonderful. They would like read me the outline and read me the notes out loud and bring me food. Because I was like not doing well. And at this point, I started uh, messing around with diets too, which I know you've done. So I tried the whole 30, I went paleo, I tried gaps, and all of that really helped. So as soon as I cut out grains, um, within two weeks, my migraines were gone and they've never come back. So. So um, I'm a big proponent of, of food to help with certain things. And it, um, and I think for me, my inflammation was so high. So it's a test called the C4A. supposed to be 2,000. You're around the, supposed to be around 2,000. Mine, the first time I took it, it came back at 10,000. So it's like 5X where I should be. Um, and they think that there is literally just so much inflammation in my brain that that was what was causing all the migraines. And so as soon as I started cutting down the inflammation, including cutting out coffee, cutting down booze, um, I started feeling like the worst of the symptoms were 
disappearing. Just and then I started getting the edge off. took some of the edge off. So then I started like going back and like pulsing on antibiotics, which means, you know, I'm taking like 10 or 14 days in a row and then I'm off for a couple of days and then I take them again to try to like, like, you know, mitigate my, my symptoms. Um, I'm doing Myers cock- like IV. So I'm going to an IV lounge once a week and I'm getting a Myers cocktail and a glutathione, which is like helps your liver and immune boosters. And, um, again, I can't seem to stay healthy. I'm also not, you know, like I'm like also in law school and I'm, I, you know, I do end up working fairly hard. Um, although I start tracking my sleep and with a, I'm like a very aggressive sleep tracker. Turns out that's like a huge lever for me. So, um, I sleep between nine and 10 hours a night, every night I have for the last five years. Um, and I had this sleep track app or that this sleep app that was telling me, I was like, I sleep eight hours, but it turns out that was a lie. I was sleeping between six and seven. And so as soon as I started tracking, I was like, oh crap. So I was able to fix that fairly fast. So between the diet and the sleep, I had gone from like a five up to like a six or seven, depending on the time of day. But still in all of law school, I was never above a seven and I was as low as a three. Um, so my worst was pretty unfunctional. I kind of put the, t- the, th- the two mark is when I can't, I start not being able to feed myself. So, which did happen at the very end of law school. Um, which I want to ask yeah. about more because I totally experienced that. And I realized that I think I've alluded to it in a couple episodes, but not actually talked about what that means. So when you say not able to feed yourself, what I would guess is like, one, you have dietary restrictions that you know really make a difference. And so getting food that is going to support your health that is already prepared is incredibly difficult and two actually preparing the food and getting the food is different difficult so like how does that look for you or what does that mean yeah yeah it usually means like i'm spending 14 to 18 hours in bed yeah i can barely get up to go to the bathroom i like the idea of getting into a car to drive to go to a grocery store to walk to figure out what i need like I can't even think enough to know what to pick up at a grocery store if I were even to be able to get to a grocery store because I obviously can't even get there. And even if I did, I don't literally do not have the synaptic brain control to know what to get. And then if I got it back to my house, I would not, certainly not be able to stand to cook. I can't follow a recipe because I can't read a recipe because I can't read. And so all of a sudden I'm stuck in my bed being like, even the idea of ordering food gets really hard because it means you have to open a computer. You have to figure out what you want. You have to be able to Google something, sort through options, find one, figure out how to call, you know, call, know your own address, like all of that. I know it sounds so crazy, but that's so impossible to do when I'm that sick. Like I can't do it. Yeah. I have really vivid memories of like some of the really specific moments, like once thinking that I was okay enough to go to the grocery store and then and I was with my husband, but running out of steam, like in the dairy aisle that he had kind of wandered halfway down the aisle to get something. And he came back and I was just staring at the cheese. And he was like, I know that look, we're done now. <laughs> or like another time that I, I, I had been having a really good day. And it was before I found out that I had pots and I didn't really know about pots. And I was like, I'm feeling pretty good. And I haven't prepared food in months. And I'm going to like chop up these Brussels sprouts. So I was standing at the counter doing that. And I just slowly like got red and sweaty and lightheaded and all of these things. And I was like, what is happening to me? And really, it's that my heart thought that I was sprinting. And so my body thought that I was sprinting, but like I didn't know it at the time. And there's just so many, so many things that go into eating that are difficult. 
so hard, but it's so important. So when I, you know, when I'm like in bed that much, that's like, okay, I'm down at a three, you know, and like one is like someone's using a bedpan and I've been there before. Like I'm, you know, someone's helping me use a bedpan and spoon feeding me soup. And that is like, you know, down at the, and then I guess one would be like hospitalized. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, so I, um, after law, after I graduated from law school, again, graduated in time, um, but by that fall, I was really, really sick again. I was back down at a two. I was not feeding myself. I was crying every day. I was exhausted. I couldn't make sense of anything. <laughs> um, and I found another different Lyme doctor, went to her, and she was like, let's test for mold um, because maybe it isn't, you know, like I know you have this big nail, but that might not be the only nail. And, you know, let's look at something else. So we, I test positive, very positive for mold. Um, what kind of mold. test was it? Was it um, like an antibody test or a mycotoxin test? It was like, did you pee into something or did they take your blood? They took my blood. Okay, so probably antibodies. Yeah, so they took my blood, or maybe I did pee. I don't know. They doesn't did it really pretty, matter. Doesn't really matter. I get diagnosed with mold, and I at this point have taken a job down in San Francisco working for tech, and I chose to work for tech because they have great insurance, flexible working hours. I took a job that was what I considered well beneath what my skill level was because I was not feeling well and I was afraid if I did anything else, I wouldn't make it. Um, and I wanted to be, I needed to be able to go to like all my doctors. So I was moving. And so I was like, let's just go big guns, like treat this mold with the biggest guns you have. And so I ended up on cholestyramine, which is, was developed by the US military to fight, um, what's the gas? Um, do you remember this? Uh, it was developed in Agent Orange. Okay. So cholestyramine was developed to detox and get Agent Orange out of soldiers' bodies. And so it's um, very strong. And I was on it for, I guess, two months. And within six days, I went from sleeping 18 hours a day back down to sleeping 10. Like, it was amazing. It, looked, it helped so much. I went mm-hmm. from, like, a 2 up to a 5, like, within a week on cholestyramine. It was amazing. Um, and I was like, okay, this is great. So within two months, I was, like, out of the the depths of 2 to 3. Um, but I, everything was still very, very hard. And this was three years ago. And so um, I've spent the last three years, I've gone to somewhere between 100 and 125 doctor's appointments a year. I spent ten to fifteen thousand dollars out of pocket every year, um, and I now, like, I am now both at the chronic fatigue clinic at Stanford University, which is a big research uh, clinic, and I have a Lyme uh, literate doctor who, and then I like you know have a naturopath and I have a masseuse and I have like an acupuncturist and I have like, you know, whatever all of these litany of things. Um, and I'm big in the camp of like. I don't, I don't know if I don't have Lyme, like, you don't think I have Lyme, that's fine. I don't care what you think I have. Like, what do you think I should do? And I'm like, willing to try it all. Like if mm-hmm. someone's like throw kale over your left shoulder every morning, I'm like, sure, I don't care. Yeah. Like the placebo effect is real. And if Perfect. that makes me feel better, great, great. I don't care about the science anymore. I used to care a lot. I don't care at all. <laughs> <coughs> I got a personal level. I care for all of us that the science catches up. Right. But on a personal level, I'm like, oh, yeah, like I have a salt lamp. I have like essential oils. I like do EMDR. I like, you know, whatever. I went to Bali and did like weird spiritual like psychic here, psychic here, like healing, like don't care. Try. I will try it all. 
um, you know, magnesium and taurine shots. I did artisanate. I just did like a whole push of IV artisanate. So both on the Western side of experimental hard drugs and on the like way woo woo side. Um, <clears throat> I just feel like at this point I'll try anything. Mm-hmm. And um, I've been out on disability for the last year. So I haven't been working. Um, or I've been working very little. Um, I kind of work qu- quarter time as an as a lawyer doing policy work, um, and yeah. So that's like that's like bringing fully up to speed. Here we are now, <laughs> and here we are now. Um, and I think like the interesting thing is I am super excited. Like I feel like there's a little bit of momentum around sharing stories, like with Natasha's project and your project, and being a part of this Instagram community where people are connected through hashtags by their diagnoses is really cool. So in my twenties, I knew not another, like did not know anyone who was sick. And now I know hundreds of people that are sick and whose experiences are very similar. And it's given me language. It's made me feel less crazy. It's helped me like not be so emotional when someone's like, but you don't look sick, you know? And a part of that's like iconography. Cause all we have is the wheelchair. Um, part of it is that like our stories aren't, you know, loud enough. And there's just, as with all the isms, like sexism and racism and whatever, like people don't really don't like to believe people unless they can see it, you know, they're like, oh, you weren't discriminated against. I didn't see it. And you're like, well, right. But like, you're not in my body. You didn't experience what I experienced, you know, like me too. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just, you know, and I, I feel like this is like a, a really important, like turning point, <laughs> in terms of like sharing stories. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Thank you. Thank and I wanted, I do want to talk more about that. And then I also have a question because I am totally with you on, I think that we need more research, both in terms of um, like what is causing things and also in terms of what treatments are working, because I think it's a huge problem that say dietary interventions aren't very well studied because they're not going to make anybody any money. And so it's easy to write all this stuff off as quackery, but obviously some of it is working or some of it is helping some people. And it would be really great to know why and who and all of those things. So I'm, I'm with you on that. And also I also will try anything. Like I'm not out there blogging about how everybody should put essential oils up their nose. Like I'm doing right now. Um, because I don't think that it's the answer for everybody, but I'm willing to try it and it has helped me. And I think that's good. I think we end up with this weird world where there are, because there's not enough information and there are so many things worth trying that might actually help or might be the placebo effect. It creates a space for, for fringe people to be like, I'm an expert and everybody should do this weird thing. Um, yeah, totally. And I, I think there's like, I feel like eventually we will figure it out, but I also like realize how similar like people who have autoimmune diseases and people who kind of stay sick, like there's so much similarity between, um, I don't know, like these, these diseases are not siloed, like whatever is happening on the cellular bottom level, like it's happening to all of us. And I think it's like very similar. So in some ways I'm like, I don't know, like, so I have chronic fatigue and they want me to take antivirals because my natural killer cell count is very low. I have like less than 20% of the natural killer cell count I should have, but no one knows why, mm-hmm. you know? And part of me is like, probably that's like, you know, maybe it's the same thing that's making my natural killer cell count low. That's making like, you know, whatever other disease that is manifesting in a different way. Um, but I do think there's like some, the like, we're like just getting some research and being involved with Stanford has been really interesting because I've been yeah. a research patient there. So like there, you know, 
trying the hormone thing and they're they're really trying to narrow the definition of chronic fatigue so it's not just that you're tired but that like right. you have chronic fatigue if you have high inflammation and low natural killer cell count they still don't know exactly why but they're trying to like make it a more narrow applicable diagnosis rather than just a like widespread you're tired so we're not going to deal with you sort of thing and they're working and they have, on like, a- diagnostic tests right they're working on diagnostic tests, but they're also working on uh, like pathology and like mm-hmm. like what is um, biomarkers, mm-hmm. which yeah. you know ultimately goes to diagnostic test. Yeah, and that's super interesting. I definitely and the more people that I've talked to, the more I'm like, yeah, I think there's definitely some widespread immune dysfunction. So it's not that not not necessarily that there's a bunch of people with chronic Lyme and chronic Lyme is a problem. It's that there's a bunch of people with some kind of immune dysfunction that we don't understand. And that's why they're not able to successfully get rid of this bacteria exactly. that other people are fine with, what, four weeks of doxy. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. That's exactly like, yeah, where where I am too. And it's interesting having gone from like 2003 when people didn't know anything and I've been in the game for 15 years and like, you know, there is a lot more and like IVIG has been really helpful for people. And it's like, why, you know, why is that really helpful? Stem cell replacement has been helpful for a lot of people. And why is that really helpful? And, you know, and there are some like really wild therapies, I'm sure you know. And, but part of it is like, it's expensive to try. I you think know, IVIG is the one that's 10 grand a month. Yeah, it is 10 grand a month. Yeah. yeah. But it's been, for people who can be like a game changer. I've seen people go from bed bound to walking on IVIG mm-hmm. and it's like, you know, hard to deny like that, that something's changing for those people, you right, know, totally amazing. But I do think there's like some, the, um, you know, it's like such an imperfect experiment on some level. Like, oh, yeah. you know, people will be like, we'll try one thing at a time. And I'm like, it just like doesn't work that way because like the seasons change and I move and I don't know, I'm dating someone this month and I'm not that month. So like, is it, is it the drugs? Is it the kale over my shoulder? Is it the fact that I'm lo- like feel yeah. loved this month? Like it's just too imperfect to know. Um, and so it's just like, you know, and if I tried one thing at a time, I wouldn't be forever. I'd be for it'd be forever. Like I just can't. I don't I like I want to live my life, you know, I want to be able to be employed. I want to be able to do things. And like, you know, I feel the best I felt in the last um 15 years this year. <clears throat> this is like my best year of health. But part of that is because I'm not working. So my stress is very low. I sleep nine to ten hours a night, every night. Um, I eat very clean. I also am on low dose naltrexin, LDN. I don't know if you've heard of LDN, but it's been super helpful with um lowering my inflammation mm. and so an inflammation is painful and right. so it's everything having pain. in my system has been super super helpful for that too um but i'm like very reticent to tell anyone what to do because yeah i'm like i don't know what's going to work for you like no idea you know i can tell you what my symptoms were what i've tried what worked for me but like we don't understand enough for me to be mm. sure about anything and if like celery juice every morning works for you then like great do it and what else – so what have you stuck with? It sounds like – I know last year you were on AIP, which is just another protocol, another version of almost the same thing, but they're all a little different. Yeah. So autoimmune paleo protocol, um, which is like a strict anti-inflammatory diet, which was very helpful in jumpstarting my healing and I think like healing some of my gut because I do think some of this is gut-related and I took a ton of antibiotics right. before we knew I should also be taking acidophilus and like gut – you know, good things for my gut. Um, I mean, I think part of the thing that's frustrating right now is that like my world has become so small, like I'm healthier, but not as happy. Mm -hmm. Like, um, I finally stopped 
like my chronic fatigue doctor finally sat me down and was like, I will not take you on as a patient if you keep working out. Like you have got to stop working out. So I've been on a three-year moratorium of working out and it's been incredibly difficult. Like I feel like I'm in this tiny rigid box and the bars are just so strong. And it's like, I have to eat right and I have to sleep right. And I can't drink and I can't drink coffee and I can't work out. And, you know, I have to like save and conserve my energy if I want to do anything. And it blows, it sucks. Like I want the science to catch up so I can not have to have this logistical overhead and not have, you know, this cage. Like I am fucking over it. Like I am over it. It's asking too much of me to like not live in order to like not be in pain. And, and especially like, you don't you can't really know you already basically said this but because you can't know which ones are making a difference and so when you shrink 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 and then and then you're like okay but do I actually need to be doing all of these things like what if one right. of them was okay to to come back in and then you try it once and it doesn't work but you can't be sure if it was because that thing didn't work or because of whatever what else is. Totally. And I think like, you know, I don't know. And just like the mental health of it does matter. Like I do want to be happy. Like I need, there's often times where I'm trading my physical health for my mental health and I like have to, I just like don't know how to live otherwise. Like that's when people kill themselves. Like you have to find things that fill you. And like I have worked real, it's one of the reasons I've gotten into writing and I'm doing the stories projects. I'm like trying to find, trying to reinvent myself for like the 19th time, Yeah, you know? I've lost all these identities, identity as a swimmer, identity as like, you know, as a skier, identity at like as an outdoor instructor, identity as a teacher, like, like there's all these things that illness has taken away from me and that I've just had to like shed these skins and be like, I can no longer do that. And it's, there's like grief in that, yeah, you know, and then all of a sudden I'm like in this tiny world where I'm like no longer really working or contributing in the way I want to be, you know, I like can't go out late I like it's just like it it just gets really it gets like sad you know there's like an element of like I'm single I would love to be a mother there I mean that's a whole other conversation you know like I ended up having to freeze my eggs because my egg count was dropping so rapidly because of being sick for so long they were like I bet this window will close for you in two years so you really need to freeze your eggs now if you ever want kids because we don't think your body will be continue making eggs like they're my like count was so low. So there's just all these like elements of grief in it. And so when it comes, you know, so I, and like the thing is like, I have been trying now that I feel a little bit better. I feel like I can just start maybe pushing on things to see if I have to be doing them. But before, you know, if, if the option of taking something out drives me back down to a three where I can't feed myself again, like I'm not willing to do that. So you, I end up getting, I've been like become very rigid in a way that's like not my personality. Like I'm like an extrovert and I'm flexible and I'm like, you know, if I, God, right out of college, I lived in 28 different places and I like, you know, moved to Argentina on a whim and I like moved to Alaska on a whim. And like now I'm like, don't like being away from my, like I, like I have to be very careful even if I go into San Francisco from Oakland, which is 45 minutes away because I'm worried I'm too far away from my bed and my meds and my systems. And you know, I like to go, I don't like to travel that much because I'm away from my detox bath and my like, you know, yeah well and there's so many things you need to bring it's like i don't know if food will be reliable i've had two minor meltdowns this week because of small scheduling changes that just like threatened the mental plans that i had because everything has to be figured out already and it's like all of a sudden that when i thought i was having lunch i can't have lunch and i don't know if food will be available that i can eat and it like it it kind of cascades 
Yeah. Yeah. It's like, okay, maybe the anxiety diagnosis back in the day wasn't right, but like I certainly do now, but it's like situational anxiety because <laughs> yeah. like yeah, the like consequence of not living in my cage is huge. It's painful. It's awful. It can be months. Like if I, if I miss something, you know, if I mess up, I can, I can trigger myself into a flare and I can be flared for months. Yeah. So it's like, of course I'm going to be anal about what I'm eating or how much sleep I'm getting. And of course I'm going to seem like anxious and uptight about it because if you were going to be sick for two months, cause you messed up that one thing, like you would be too, you know, mm-hmm. but it's like, but now that I've, so anyway, <laughs> rant, rant aside. <laughs> no, it's, it's real. Um, but now that I've been like feeling a little bit better, I've been like trying to loosen a little bit. Like, can I push that cage out two months, two inches, you know, mm-hmm. even just like one little bar. Um, and so my diet, I've been able to reintroduce a couple things into my diet. So, um, like essentially I now feel like I need to eat mostly paleo. Um, but I can have like, you know, if I have like a couple bites of dairy a week, like two bites of cheese a week, like my body can handle it. I can actually like have a couple bites of gluten these days and be okay. If I eat like a whole piece of pizza, like I can feel that I'll feel that. Um, I can like drink a little bit. I don't do well with wine. Like there's certain things I can drink and there's certain things I can't, but even that's like a little dicey. Mm -hmm. Um, and my body doesn't, I just don't feel very good. I have been like on this fairly consistent protocol for the last year, which is antivirals, two different types of antivirals. And that's trying to get at um, <coughs> the Babesia and Epstein-Barr, which continues to be positive. Um, and I'm on Plaquenil and Lodos Naltrexone, which are for anti-inflammatories. And then I'm on like supplements, you know, like omega-3 fatty acids and CoQ10 and curcumin and like kind of all the things you would imagine that are both immune boosting <clears throat> and um and that are like supposed to be anti-inflammatory i'm taking garlic pills right now just that's a thing that i'm doing and it's a real weird ride because you get like an aftertaste i don't know five hours after it's really oh yeah i'm like oh my mouth and it's not quite garlic it's like it's like salami taste this is gross you're welcome everybody but it's like (laughs) It's like just this weird, like, oh, what's happening? Because it'll be so much later from when I took it. But I, it's a thing that I'm trying. Yeah. I'm big into detox baths. I do a lot of like baths and Epsom salt. I'm not a great detoxer. I don't have the MTHFR mutation. But um, I did do a 23andMe and took that genetic mm. test and brought it to like a bunch of other people to like interpret and tell me. So I don't methylate my Bs. So I take vitamin B shots. Those are very helpful for my energy levels. And um, I'm not a great detoxer genetically, so I do um, a bunch of things to help detox. Also, something called pacing, which is like a little controversial in um, chronic fatigue world, which is just like exerting it all creates inflammation and inflammation is like the number one thing we're trying to fight. So like no adrenaline and no working out. And so I've been really trying to stick to that. Um, Very difficult for me personally but um that also does seem to be helping which is like a such a bummer yeah you're like i just (laughs) want this to not work and then i can put it behind me yeah and i'm like i don't know i have all sorts of other like weird you know i go to therapy every week because Mm -hmm. i i have ptsd from this whole situation it's been like incredibly stressful i have so much grief like you say so much grief yeah so much grief um you know and even just like learning how to like educate my friends a little bit better and like all of that has been helpful in therapy or like how to like how do you date when you are in an unpredictable chronic illness situation like Mm -hmm. very difficult 
difficult. You know, and there's like some literature that says like Lyme can be passed on, you know, in utero or maybe even sexually. And so there's all these like other weird navigating things. You have to be like, hey, anyway, this might not be real science, but maybe you should know. That's in the the Lyme documentary they have on Prime, which I forget what it's called right now, but... Have you under watched our it? Skin? Yeah, yeah, in Under Our Skin. Those are both in there. And you're like, oh, God. Yeah, yeah. The movie's like a little inflammatory, but um, yeah. interesting. Have you seen Unrest? I, I actually haven't. Oh, man. you got to watch. Jen I, Bray is I know. It's it's funny. So we're, we live now. We live in this small town. And in the, like, town hall, they show movies, I don't know, every couple weeks. I don't know how they're chosen. It's extremely random. Right now, it's food movies. It's going to be shock a lot next weekend. But anyway, the weekend after we moved here, they were showing Unrest. And so I didn't watch it for a long time because I was like, it's perfect. I'm going to watch it in our new home. And then we ended up having something come up and I didn't watch it. And so now it's on Netflix. Like, there's nothing stopping me. (laughs) Totally watch it. Yeah, except that. Like the summer was really busy and I kept being like, oh, I'm not in the headspace for what I know will be a really hard ride, but I want to, I know it's, it's like a required viewing at this point for me, but totally, totally. Um, yeah. And I like, um, you know, like meditation, you know, kind of like learning how to like be present and calm myself down in a fight or flight mm-hmm. is, has been really helpful. I actually spent, I was listening to episode with natasha i also spent you know two months in bali doing like weird um healing things healing modalities um i'm gonna go to oaxaca and the beach in mexico to like continue to relax i've really thought i mean i'm thinking about moving out of the city i have a lot of overstimulation issues which come from like the brain issues are really hard for me because um being smart is one of my identities too that i like take very serious you know has been like a big piece of who i am so that one's been really hard. Um, you know, like, yeah, they're just like sometimes like when I was on our IV artisanate, which is a really hard hitting malarial, which was for treating babesia. I got really, really sick again. I was back down at like a, a four, maybe I couldn't drive and I couldn't drive cause I couldn't follow the directions that maps was giving me, which is wild. It's like, and I couldn't listen to the radio cause I couldn't, it just sounded like gibberish. I couldn't understand podcasts anymore, which is wild. You know, it's like, that's such a weird thing to have happen. Mm-hmm. But when I'm like that stimulation, like the bright light moving cars, I, it's too hard for me. I can't actually, like, I feel slightly autistic and I mean that in a very literal way. It's too much information yeah. and I can't process it. Um, so I've thought about moving out of the Bay Area to someplace that's like calmer, um, you know, and of course, like the hard part in here is like, you know, we live in a capitalistic society that, you know, rewards and really values people who are who are producing. And as someone who is sick, like when I feel well, I like can execute like a motherfucker. Like I'm a producer. But like when I don't, I don't. And so it's really hard, like both finding value for myself, finding value as like a part of society as a, in a partnership, you know, where I know I won't be able to like be the exact partner that I want to be. And there's like this, like, what does one do when one can't consistently produce? Like there's no space for us in the, you know, there's just not a lot of space in the working world. And there hasn't been, really been any like movement around it either. Like what are the accommodations? What would work really look like? Like what would work look like for me in a way that was both like not detrimental to my health but could be productive for society. And I've been like thinking about that, like, you know, and, and for a while, like 
I mean, I really didn't think I had much value, you know, like I was like, I don't like, I don't know. I'm like not worth it for anyone to employ. I'm not like worth it for anyone to date. Like, you know, and like, that's like, that's fucking tough, (laughs) tough to work through that stuff. But I do think there's like being a sick woman or a sick person in a cap, like a strongly capitalistic society is so hard. It's like hard to find a place that where you fit. I super relate to all of those questions and don't have any answers clearly, but that's, I think I, yeah, it's, I don't even know because I also thought for Natasha's project thought about accommodations and like, I don't even know what questions to ask because that's, that's a huge part of it of like, what does it look like for work not to be detrimental to my health? So for me never to be in a position where I have to choose to push through it, I like can't imagine. I don't know. I don't know what that would look like because it's so unpredictable for me. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And, yeah. And I have no idea. And that feels like a really important question. And I have also I've been super, super lucky, super fortunate, super privileged to have this space because I also I haven't worked. I haven't been working in a year. So I have done things that generated income, but nothing consistent. Um, totally. I, me too. Yeah. And so and it's like, well, partly figuring out how to leverage some of that. So like I have I started selling cross-stitch patterns, which is small but fun for me because I also wrote the program that does it. So it's like there's more to it than I think maybe what it sounds like. But that has been really fun because I'm coding and then I'm designing, which I have a design degree. So my professional degree is that I could be an architect, but I'm not. Um, right. And uh, and like that has a killer culture also of, you know, like people, especially when they're interning, it's like you're just expected to work 80-hour weeks. And that was never going to be an option for me. Um, But anyway, so it's like, okay, I can do all of these things and then I can release them on my own schedule and then people can buy them on their own schedule. And there's something to that that is really appealing. And also cross-stitch patterns are like $3. So to scale that to a full-time income may be possible, but certainly would be difficult. But there's something in the model of like, you literally just opt into it whenever you want to. And then as soon as you're done on your timeline, it's in the world and then people can choose to assign value to it. Yeah, totally. Totally. There's something in there and I don't know what it is yet. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I know. I kind of want to get us all in the same room and like whiteboard and like, you know, design thinking it because I like, I have really like run up against it and everyone's like, Oh, so you just need like, you know, this thing is due within a couple of weeks. And I'm like, or like I just had a two and a half month flare. Like I could not have given you a good product in that two months. Like there's no way my brain wasn't thinking, you know, and like I have, I have like speed pills that I can take when I need to that have been prescribed to me. Yeah. But like, like it's, it's possible it, to force it's possible. through it, but it's but not it's, sustainable. But it's not sustainable. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So, so it's a good question. It's tough, which is, yeah. <laughs> um, so can we talk about uh, the Invisible Stories Project a little bit? Sure. So um, I got into storytelling years ago. I started listening to The Moth back in college, so like a long time ago, 15 years ago, when The Moth first came out and got really into it um, and just kind of – I feel like I my, – my ability to empathize, empathize with people was really growing by listening to other people's stories, whatever they were. Yes. Um, and I found podcasting particularly useful medium for that, like This American Life, like doing these deep dives into other people's lives was really helping expand my own world. And um, 
when I moved to Seattle for law school, I got really into the moth, told a couple of stories. They made the podcast. I won a grand slam and I was, you know, started getting paid to tell stories. That was really cool. And um, just really found it both like cathartic for me to tell stories and like super helpful to listen to those stories from other people as well. So when I moved back, when I moved down to San Francisco, I continued like telling stories at the moth, but also um, started telling stories at my work. So put together a couple story slams for them around, you know, uh, I worked at a ed tech company. And so, you know, stories, helping people tell stories when they were kids. And people started asking me, someone started asking me um, to tell my story about being sick because I was on the diversity and inclusion committee. And as I started telling it, I was like, oh, this is like really useful for me to practice how to say these, how to tell this story, but also really useful for people to like really empathize, you know, that like, like taking a few more words to explain tired, right? Like, like, can I describe that in a paragraph in a way that people might be able to relate to in a better way? So, um, kind of based off of the moth model. So this is like five to 10 minute stories that are like, um, not meant to be full histories, but just like a tiny little snapshot, a little window into this bigger house where you could maybe then be like, Whoa, I wonder what those other rooms look like. Um, um, the idea is to like tell stories where people are help people see and be seen. So making the invisible visible. And so the first I'm trying to do, I'm trying to collect 30 stories, maybe keep going, kind of depend on, depends on what happens. Um, 10 to 15 of them will be my own different stories of illness, different periods, you know, a bunch of stories from college, like little snippets, stories of friendship and love and sacrifice and, you know, pain mm-hmm. and whatever. Um, and they're all just being uploaded to SoundCloud right now. So there'll be transcripts. They're all like written out and then read into a microphone and recorded. Um, and so there'll be like written versions and then this oral version. Um, and then I've got people who are you know, telling stories about sexual assault and grief and addiction and all of these things where sometimes you just wish you could like write, have someone be able to know that you're going through a divorce and things are really hard without you having to be like, I'm going through a divorce. Don't look at me with that much pity. Yeah. <laughs> You know, (laughs) I don't want to talk about it, but I just want you to know that like I'm off and tired and sad and I'm actually not angry at you. I'm just going through a divorce, you know? Yeah. And so the idea that like those, um, those stories like need a place to be told. Um, and that I think like the, ultimately I'd like to kind of maybe turn it into a book or even try to take them those stories. Like if you told a five minute story, then taking the next like 10 to 15 minutes to ask a few questions. Like what's the one thing you would want people to know? What's the best way someone's helped you? Mm -hmm. You know, things like that. Like like building out resources. Yeah. Building out kind of like resources. So kind of, um, yeah, the more like a slightly more theatrical writery version of what we're doing here. Um, But kind of like, you know, much smaller little bites. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. I'm excited. I'm obsessed with storytelling, which that's how we met in the first place. So yes. <laughs> <laughs> so no surprise, but oh, that's, it's great. I'm excited. Thank you for listening to the fifth episode of No End in Sight. I've got a whole bunch of interviews recorded right now for future episodes. So make sure you subscribe in iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure you check out the Invisible Stories project at spooniestories.com. From there, you can listen to the latest stories and learn more about submitting your own story to the project.
If you want to commiserate with me on Instagram or Twitter about day-to-day life with chronic illness, you can always find me at BenSB. And if you want to share your story with me, just head to noendinsight.co and click share your story. I would absolutely love to hear from you. I also recently started a Facebook group called Chronic Hustlers for people living with chronic conditions who are self-employed. It's pretty small right now, but I'd love it to become a place where we dig into all the questions about work and productivity and prioritizing your health that Liz and I discussed near the end of the interview. Last thing, this podcast is supported by my cross-stitch company, Digital Artisanal. When I'm up for it, I make simple modern patterns that you'll actually want to hang in your home. For me, cross-stitch is a perfect way to occupy my mind and my eyeballs during flares when I mostly watch long TV marathons. I just released my fall pattern collection, and I'd love if you checked us out at digitalartisanal.com. Thanks for listening.